The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. We're between seasons right now, but I couldn't wait to share with you this conversation I had with one of my favorite actors and favorite people about her latest project and about the brave choices she's made throughout her extraordinary career. Like so many of you listening, I've been a fan of Frances McDormand from the first time I saw her on the big screen. Many of you probably know her from her breakout performance in the 1996 film Fargo, written and directed by the Coen brothers. That is, her husband, Joel Coen, and his brother, Ethan. In that movie, Frances plays Marge Gunderson, a very pregnant, very down-to-earth police chief in small-town Minnesota. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. From his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Since then, she's played many other unforgettable roles on stage and screen, including her award-winning performances in Olive Kitteridge, Three Billboards Outside, Ebbing, Missouri, and Nomadland. Frances has also been a vocal advocate for expanding access to more women and people of color in Hollywood. At the 2018 Oscar ceremony, she made headlines with her acceptance speech for Best Actress when she invited every female nominee in every category to stand with her. The actors, Meryl, if you do it, everybody else will, come on. The filmmakers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the cinematographer, the, the composers, the songwriters, the, 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 the designers. I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion writer. That's when many of us first heard the term inclusion rider, something she encouraged that actors put in their contracts, stipulating that a certain proportion of the cast or crew must be women or people of color. Now Frances is up for another Oscar, 
this time for the remarkable film Women Talking, which she produced and appears in. The film is based on a novel by Miriam Taves and was written and directed by Sarah Polly. We had so much to talk about, and I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Frances McDormand. Hello, Frances. Hello, Hillary. <laughs> I remember, God, was it seven years ago, 2015, we watched the Academy Awards together Oh, at our mutual great friend's home. I remember that, too. <sighs> you know what? And uh, may I call you Hillary, Secretary Clinton? Yeah, yes, you better. Yes, indeed. Thank you so very much. Uh, because <laughs> I remember, because we have a long tradition of being very snarky. <laughs> while watching. And I remember I started talking about somebody's outfit, which I love to do. It's a fashion show, right? It's a thing. Yes. It's kind of part of the sport. It is. And I remember looking over at you and you looked at me quizzically and I realized, <laughs> oh, I have to explain that part of it is just being B-I-T-C-H-Y. <laughs> it's like sports commentary. <laughs> well, now, are you going this year? Our film has been invited. I would hope so. I want to talk to you about that. But first, let's get into the important stuff like, are you going? Well, you know what, Hillary? It is something to talk about because it's a weird, in my little pocket of the universe mm -hmm. called the film industry, which is, in fact, I want to remind everyone, a very small part of the larger entertainment business. That TV show is not my favorite part of it. I call it the convention. Our family calls it the award convention. That's a good description. It's like a car show. Yes. And they right. roll us out every year. <laughs> and then they roll us back in the garage. And I kind of feel like uh, I, I couldn't have had a more wonderful time over the years going. But every time that I or some project I've I've been involved in is invited, I reassess it. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still reassessing. I know that the film's going. And I think a really important thing for us, Sarah, Polly, the director, and Dee Dee Gardner, our producing partner, is that the invitation that we've been extended, we're very interested in making that a very loud statement about the omissions that have been made this year. No women were nominated for director, were they? And people of color. It is so I, I becoming just, so bald that it's kind of hard to ignore. Well, there's no ignoring it. There's no ignoring it. There's no ignoring it. And I think why I, I'm saying that because when, you know, when this podcast is aired and our conversation is, is, you know, a part of the conversation that other people are having about the film, we're going to be already engaged in a process of saying, if you are interested in the success of Women Talking, you're also interested in the success of The Woman King by Gina Prince-Blythewood. Exactly. You're interested in the success of Till. You're mm -hmm. interested in the success of many films that mm -hmm. were made this year that were helmed by women. And they have the exact same interest in changing the industry as, as Dee Dee Gardner, Sarah Pauly, and Frances McDormand have. Yeah, I love that, Frances. We're talking about your most recent movie, Women Talking, because the film is so extraordinary. To me, it's what film should be. Explain for our listeners who haven't seen it yet, I hope there's not too many of them, but there will be some, sort of what the core of the story is about. It's based on a true story, and it's based on a, a horrific event that happened in a Mennonite community in Bolivia that was reported on, actually, in Vice. It turned out that for over several years, the men of the community used a cow tranquilizer. They sprayed it into women's rooms, anesthetized the women, and while they were unconscious, they, the women were raped over and over, over several years. Females horrifically from three years to 80 years old. And when the women woke up battered and bruised, not understanding what had happened, some of them pregnant, they were told by the men of the community and the male leaders of the community that it was in their imagination or they were being tempted by the devil. They were basically, as the term is now, gaslit. Mm -hmm. So finally, some of the men were caught actually climbing into the one of the women's rooms. And eight of the men were taken by the community and locked into a shed. Finally, the Bolivian government found out about the 
incident and took them to jail. So what Miriam Tay's book, Women Talking, did is took it from that moment forward and said, what if, what if a trial did not happen, but the women decided to vote while the men were away to post bail for the men that were jailed? What if the women voted to either do nothing and forgive the men as they were being asked to do by the patriarchal leaders, to stay and fight the men for what they had done, or to leave and begin a new world somewhere else? And so Miriam's book starts with that vote and the women gathering in a hayloft to discuss forgiveness, complicity, retribution, revenge, the future. And this is a group of women who have been kept illiterate because they're not, they're not educated past a certain point. Mm-hmm. So what I love about what Miriam did is she shows a group of women who, yes, they're illiterate, but their imaginations are broad. Mm-hmm. And their their sense of faith and justice is deepened, you know, has equanimity. You know, I read the book when it came out, and it just was so shocking and painful. And then the way you portray it in the film is, to me, just an extraordinary, you know, look into human nature and the kind of sense of justice that can be ignited even in people who have been literally separated from the world. I I thought it was just an extraordinary film. Thank you. And I have to tell you, so much credit goes to Sarah Pauly and her, not only her skill as a storyteller, she also has a very personal sense of justice She has a long history of political activism, Mm -hmm. so she understands it as a piece of, I like to call it good propaganda, because I think there is good propaganda. I I think that it's uh, Mm -hmm. it, it ignites conversation. And, you know, one of the great things we've been able to do with the film, you know, films are meant to be seen in a dark room with other people with disparate political beliefs and and religious faiths and backgrounds, but they come into that space and they share the same story. That's the beauty of film. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about it, hopefully. And then they-, they talk about it and they can't leave the lobby for a while. Those are the best moments, right? When you're suspended in that space for a while with a group of strangers. Unfortunately, that's not happening as, as often as we would like it to. But what we have been able to do is have a lot of screenings on college campuses and invite professors who are not teaching film, but they're teaching religious studies, ethics, gender studies. And the conversations that are that are happening out of those screenings have been delicious. <laughs> Absolutely delicious. I was also interested in the character that uh, you played. I mean, it was a small role in the film, but a very powerful one. And without being a spoiler, you know, your character is severe, intimidating, resistant to change, really a defender of the status quo. Uh, Someone who has bought hook, line, and sinker, everything that she'd been indoctrinated by and lived throughout her long life. Was she hard to play for you? You know, Hillary, I really am so appreciative of the way Sarah cast me in this film, and that we we kind of cast me together as Scarface Jans. First of all, just who wouldn't want to play a character called Scarface <laughs> Jans? That being said, more importantly, there were three positions posited in the film. As I said before, do nothing and forgive the men. Mm-hmm. Stay and fight the men and leave. There were three matriarchs in the hayloft. Scarface, Agatha, and Greta, all the women of the community, 300 or more women in the community, their fates were being decided by these three families. Scarface represents a large group of the women in that community who, for whatever reason, fear, complacency, the status quo, whatever it is, they have chosen to do nothing and forgive because they believe that their place in heaven is threatened if they don't. Mm -hmm. So I felt that by casting someone who an audience expects to turn up more in the conversation, it keeps that voice alive. 
by casting me, even mm-hmm. though what I love is also that Scarface Jans and her family, her daughter and granddaughter, don't have a lot of dialogue. Most of our scenes are just seeing us in our life, silently in our life, going about our life with the pressure of this decision hanging over us. But I think it's really important to keep their voice alive, those other women's voice alive. Well, it's a very realistic set of options. And we are presented with them every single day of our life as women. Mm -hmm. Do nothing, stay and fight, Mm -hmm. or walk away. Exactly. Oh, Hillary, don't you know it? (laughs) I do know it. It's sort of, you know, it's just a reflection, even though this is a community that most of us will never experience, never be part of. It is engaged in a universal decision making. Absolutely. It's embroidered in a very tight, cruel work of our life, if you want to use a metaphor. That's exactly right. Well, the the last question I wanted to ask about the film, and you've mentioned um, Sarah Polly, the director, the screenwriter. Was it one of your most unusual but gratifying experiences to work essentially with an all-women team? How did that feel different to you than your long career in so many other settings? Yeah. So I read the book. I optioned the book. I immediately took it to Dee Dee Gardner, who is a, a, one of the, the partners in a company called Plan B, because I had been really interested in the films I'd made, Moonlight, 12 Years a Slave. So I, I sent the book to Dee Dee. She immediately got in touch. We got in a room together, and she was just passionate. And one of the people that we first started talking about was Sarah Pauly, because she really is an auteur. She takes it from the first step to the last step. So we got in touch with her and she said, I have three children. I love my life in Toronto. (laughs) How do we do this so that I can have a life? And we said, Mm -hmm. we're really interested in that. So let's have short days. Let's have childcare. Let's, you know, find the farm, live on the farm, shoot it on the farm, do it in the summer when your kids are off of school. And we were able to accomplish maybe not all those things, but because we were a female-led organization, mostly Mm family-oriented, it changed our perception of everything. We're taking a quick break. Coming up, Frances shares how she went from supporting actor to leading protagonist on screen and in her own life. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, 
You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's switch gears a bit and talk about how you got into acting in the first place. Where did that come from? I like starting with when I was in second grade to kind of lead up to this point in my professional life. You know, I lived in small, rural cities, towns, most of my life. And my local library had a summer program where if you read 10 books, you got your Polaroid put on the corkboard at the end of the summer. And I read 10 books. Most of them were biographies of women explorers and writers. And I got my picture put up on the corkboard, Hillary. And it never stopped. And then there was a point in my, when I was a teenager, when literature that had already become my fantasy life became a social life when I started reading Shakespeare and an English teacher said, let's put on some scenes after school. And then I realized that literature could become something that was actually with other people in a room. And then that that grew into my becoming an actor. How did you translate those experiences as first a child, then a teenager, into the awareness that, hey, I can do that. Were there people in addition to the teacher who encouraged you? Were there role models that you saw out in the world that you said to yourself, hey, that's what I want to be? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It started with these very rare individuals who, in the educational system, because I, you know, I come from a working class background, and so I went through public school, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s. And those teachers recognized, because I was a very quiet, shy person, I wasn't one of those children who when everybody said, oh, she'll be an actor, because I was always <laughs> tap dancing or something. No, I was always in the corner reading. But there was something about, it was where my intellect lies. I have an intuitive intellect. I don't necessarily have a, you know, something that my husband Joel and I are always talking about. I bring him towards the corporal, and he brings me towards the intellectual, but there's an intelligence there. And I think that, you know, in public school when I was growing up with things like woodshop and car mechanics and technological classes, everyone's intellect was found. If you couldn't pass math because you just did not have that kind of brain, Mm -hmm. but someone saw you build a bookcase or put together a car engine, they understood that you had that kind of intellect. And then they could could shepherd you towards those kind of futures. So I had teachers who saw that 
I was not passing math and I was not passing science, but I couldn't stay out of the books in English and all kinds of literature was my candy, was my joy. It wasn't just from a theatrical point of view, but they would ask me if I wanted to stay after class and read other Shakespeare plays. They would give me books to read. When I was in college, there was no theater major. I was the only theater major in college, but the head of the theater program, Dr. Judy, said, you need to go to graduate school. You need to be among your peers and have three more years to test yourself against this thing you love. And then I went to drama school at Yale, and I was given the opportunity to think of myself as an artist for three years. I went on full scholarship. I had work study. I had to work my way through that. But by the time I got out of that seven years, I believed in myself. Mm-hmm. And I quickly started, had to do a Pat's Blue Ribbon commercial <laughs> to pay the rent. But I did it as an actor. I paid my rent as an actor. Oh, I love that. And you have played a series of iconic women that we all know and we think about. Was that something that just kind of evolved? I think, you know, here we are at a certain age, right, Hillary? Mm -hmm. I'm 65. My love of acting started when I was 14. So I've done it for 50 years, let's say. And I would say the first half of my professional career, I played supporting roles to male protagonists, especially in film, not on stage. Stage has always offered female actors a wider range of three-dimensional characters. But the majority of the work I did in film was supporting roles. And I think that because I I was really born to be a leading actor on Mm -hmm. stage, that's kind of what I was trained to do, was play the canon of all those roles. Lady Macbeth. Clytemnestra, Hedda Gobbler, all the ones that you, you know, that you would read on uh, on Glenda Jackson's resume. Oh, yes. But I think that I got very, very good at playing supporting roles, as many women do in our lives, not just on stage and film, but in my life. I supported one of the best filmmakers of our generation. You did. And then when our son graduated from high school, about a year before that, I knew that I would be bereft. Uh-huh. Being introduced to my son and being privy to his becoming an adult is really the the greatest gift of my life. So I knew that I would be bereft and I needed to focus on something else to get out of his way. And so that's <laughs> when I optioned Olive Kittredge and started developing that. And that's when I started playing leading roles in film. And I have since then. What a creative way to deal with your empty nest uh, syndrome. You know? Yeah. I love that. Because you loved being a mom and you loved taking care of a house. I mean, you've, I've read that you've said that I before. Love it. <laughs> it's, I love it. I have to say, let's face it, it's sometimes a better hobby than a full-time job. Mm-hmm. I really like mm-hmm. it as a hobby. Sometimes it's like, well, somebody else, like, I'm not going to go over there and pick up that anymore. <laughs> somebody else, I'm going to try to train myself not to pick that up anymore. But I think, yeah, I think that there's something about um, becoming the leading protagonist in your life is there's something kind of metaphorical about it. You did and you have. And, you know, when I think about the iconic women that you've played, Marge Gunderson and Fargo, Olive Kitteridge, Fern in Nomadland, they all seem in their own ways, you know, very iconoclastic, eccentric, quirky, you know, in Three Billboards, obviously outraged. I mean, there's just strong emotion but also a sense of commitment to living a life on her own terms. How do you think about these characters in relation to your own life right now? When I first came to New York, Hillary, and I was, you know, offered a meeting with a casting director, she sat me down and she said, here's some things you need to know. You got to get that tooth fixed. I had a little chip in my front tooth. She said, you have to learn how to use some makeup and wear high heels because you'd make a great pioneer woman, but they're not making that many Westerns these days. (laughs) So I went out her door, not very happy, and spent a few days thinking about that. And lo and behold, I think if you look at those characters that you've mentioned, Fern, Mildred, Hayes, Mm -hmm. 
Marge Gunderson, Olive Kittredge. There's something about them that I think belies her advice, mm-hmm. that they are those kind of women, a kind of American iconic women who, they're like standing stones, right? They're mm-hmm. like those those rocks out in the, the desert. Yeah, Stonehenge or somewhere. Yes, exactly. So I think that's kind of what those characters represent. But I also, I'm really interested also in that, so Olive Kitch was, was adapted from the novel by Elizabeth Strout, by Jane Anderson. Nomadland was created by Chloe Zhao. Both Marge Gunderson and Mildred Hayes were written by Joel and Ethan Cohen and Martin McDonough, respectively. For me, those all the parts were written with me in mind. And not only me in mind, Frances McDormand, but the characters I played. So Fern was building off Mildred Hayes, Marge Gunderson, and Olive Kittredge, as much as other characters in kind of modern, classic iconography, female iconography, right? They're all built on these iconic figures, not just me. Right. Right? Not, it wasn't Frances McDormand. It was like these iconic ideas of woman. And in some cases, like with Mildred Hayes, I actually pl- I thought of John Wayne a lot when I was playing the part. So there's a lot of kind of trying to, the idea of how can you attach to these characters that have to take you through this landscape. I've always thought of my job as a ser- I'm in a service position. I'm serving the role that's offered and that as I've gotten older, I'm able to help develop those characters with the storytellers more and more, but I'm serving the characters as much as I'm serving the story. Mm, That's such a good way of putting it. I mean, because these characters deserve to be seen and heard, and you have done that so beautifully that these women become almost part of our consciousness, our collective consciousness. And I hope so. I, I believe, well, I, speaking for myself, I believe that. And may I add something to this that we know? Yes. A journalist said after watching, um, I, I think it was Mildred Hayes and Three Billboards, he said, watching my face was like visiting a national park, which <laughs> I love. I love because I have valleys, <laughs> I have mesas and peaks that I've earned in my Every faith. single one of them. Every single one of them. And you have shown a real fearlessness in rejecting a lot of these unrealistic and, and very restrictive Hollywood beauty standards. Where does that fearlessness come from? Trust me, I think about it a lot. I, I have to think about it a lot. Sometimes my husband will say, will you please shut up? <laughs> I'm tired of hearing you say <laughs> that somebody or so-and-so, you know, isn't, it, you know, it's like, but so. You tell him, you are talking to a national park, yes. for a little respect, please. <laughs> you better watch out, mister, right? You're talking to a national park right here. Um, but, you know, I also think there's a couple things, and he certainly has something to do with it, because I've often said, when my husband looks at me, the face that he reflects He likes what he sees. If he Mm -hmm. didn't like what he saw, my face would be looking like his. And so I would have a lot more lines on my face that were sadder. Mm. But I have happy lines because that's what I'm reflecting. But I also think it's in reaction. You know, I give a lot of credit to that casting director because I left that room saying, okay, I'm not what they expect, but they're going to need one of me one day, and I'm going to be the best one of that that I can be. You if got they it. need somebody bigger or shorter or mm. or this or that, I'll be that other thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be unique. I'm going to be me. Every story needs them. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. You know, I also love the fact that you have done both stage and... If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans. The chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Film work. And and you've even done experimental theater with companies like the Worcester Group. What keeps luring you back? So Liz LeCompte, who is the director of the Worcester Group, and Kate Valk, who is one of the founding members of that group, they're dear friends. When my son was starting kindergarten, and I knew that I wanted to stay in one place. Joel and I wanted to be in one place. We raised our son in New York City. We wanted him to have consistency because the rest Mm -hmm. of our life was not going to be consistent. So I knew that once he started school, I was going to stay in in New York more and do theater more. And I went to them and I said, I've got to have work. I know I need work. I need consistent focus. I need to keep my engine alive. I've got to keep it well-tuned. I need a place to go. And they said, come here because it's a matriarchal organization. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to leave to pick him up for school. I was able to bring him there if I needed to. I was able to skip a day if he had a doctor's appointment. It was just an, it was understood. No questions asked. It wasn't just that. It's also the way that they make art. They make art in a very extraordinary way. And I think that the art that they produce is some of the most, for me, it's where I did my classical performances. You know, instead of a more conventional way of doing Mm -hmm. the classics, it was a much more avant-garde way of doing the classics. So it just suited 
me more than, say, a production at the Globe or on Broadway or the West End. So for me, it was not only something that challenged me as an artist, it really gave me a home. It gave me a theatrical home. But I I love the theme that is running through this conversation about the importance of creating situations like you did with women talking, having a female sensibility about childcare, about shooting around children's summer vacations, now talking about, you know, what you found with the Wooster group, being able to pick your son up at school and and do what you needed to do. I mean, it's so refreshing and still so rare. Institutions are not willing to make those kinds of decisions that enable you know, more women to pursue their potential and also at the same time do what is critically important, you know, have relationships, raise children, take care of elderly parents, whatever it might be. Absolutely, Hillary. I mean, you know, I recently looked up the phrase and I know that you heard it and it resonated for you. You can have it all. Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is that so who originally said that? I believe it was Betty Friedan. And then Oprah, I think, is credited with the second part of that statement, which is very important. You can have it all, just not all at once. Exactly. So I think that part of my young feminist mind at 14 and 15 said, oh, I can have it all. Then I'm mm-hmm. going to have it all. Have it all. And <laughs> exactly then right. got really <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> It's really hard to fucking have it all. You've got to put a lot of things in place. So let's take, for example, because, you know, nobody is listening to this podcast if they don't understand that from your perspective, Secretary Clinton. So let's take it from uh, Glenda Jackson's perspective. She didn't decide to become a producer of film. She decided to go into the parliament for 25 years (laughs) and change policy. Uh Now, I'm not saying that any actor should become a politician, for God's sake. (laughs) We know how that can work out. But I think it is interesting that if you put the kind of energy that we, you know, that actors and producers and directors and filmmakers have exercised and practiced into activism. Right, right. Like I was saying before, there's good propaganda. There's really good ways of understanding who your audience is and how they Mm -hmm. can be Mm -hmm. educated. So I think, you know, let's have it all. Why not? Let's have have it all. And also give the opportunity for some kind of, I believe, um, what, what I often say to, you know, when we're having screening with college students, I'm not interested in taking down the patriarchy. That's going to happen naturally as a natural evolution of humankind. But Mm -hmm. I think what I'm interested in is really illuminating the matriarchy that has been there since the first campfire was built and had to be kept alive. You know, I could talk to you about this all day, but I do want to also ask you, you know, another thing you've done is to carve out a life for yourself with your husband and your son Outside of Hollywood. So what's a typical day like for you when when you're not shooting a movie, when you're not talking to directors, when you're not reading, you know, material that you might option? How do you spend your time? Well, I'm really, really fortunate because Joel and I were always interested. We never lived in L.A. We lived in L.A. for work, but we always lived in New York City. We, we, we raised our son in New York City, and we have many friends that have nothing to do with the industry. So mm. we, we didn't live inside it. It was our job, but it wasn't our life. We're also very privileged in that we can have more than one home. You know, Mm -hmm. I have a home in New York City and I have a home in a rural area, which exposes me to nature in a way that I couldn't I could never spend all my life in a large city because Mm -hmm. nature is a huge Mm -hmm. part of my everyday. I'm not a great planter, but I'm a great pruner. I love to prune (laughs) things. You give me a saw and a couple branches, I can spend all day. Can you come to my house? (laughs) Yes, I'm ready. Um, I love to cook. I have groups of women that we get together and we, we, you know, the classic stitch and bitch, but it's not, you know, it's a little gossip thrown in, but a lot of talk about the books we're reading mm-hmm. and the, the the information we're sharing. I've gotten involved in local politics in a way of with affordable housing in the town that I 
spend time. I feel like there's now, I think as a lot of we older women know, it doesn't seem like there's enough hours in the day to accomplish Isn't the things. Isn't that true? Oh my gosh. I mean, I am constantly saying, I have, I don't know how I have so much to do all the time. How much to do? Uh, you know, uh, but uh, but they, more more importantly, you know, Hillary, I want, I want to ask you something because here's some advice I need. I have been doing the same thing for so long. And what I want to do is not be so addicted is too dramatic, but I don't want to be at the mercy of the thing I've done for so long because it's defined so much of my day and so right. much of my year. I, I kind of I'm used to these rhythms of, OK, you have a movie, you start this process of a movie, then you do this part and this part and this part and then. You start again. I'd really like to know what it's like to get up in day and have a clear horizon and mm. know that I'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Will I be okay, Hillary? You're gonna be okay. okay you're gonna be good. you're gonna be totally okay. I, I hate to break it to you though. I don't know that you're ever gonna have a clear horizon because your mind is gonna be constantly churning about I got to go prune something. Um, I got to figure out how to make the inclusion rider real. I've got to, you know, figure out how I can support my son as he goes off. And you are never going to be someone who is not alive and curious and active. And hooray. <laughs> I'm so happy that <laughs> that is who you are. And you don't want to give up. I could never give up trying to influence politics or trying to you know, support people who I think are going to be, you know, better for my grandchildren than other people. So I'm always going to be interested in that. And I think that's how you you do it. Well, thank you. I think, Hillary, you know, it's important for the podcast listeners to know that you brought me to tears because it's so true. And the truth always, you know, hits us in the most the most deepest way. I also something that I'm trying to practice. And I know that you you already have been practicing this. And I think it's really important right now because we have so many female leaders who are transitioning in their lives to the next phase. I am really interested in pointing towards the people that are familiar to me. If you have responded to what I've done in my life at 65, then I want to point you to Dee Dee Gardner and Sarah Polly, who I worked with on Women Talking, and say, these women, I trust them. I know what they're doing. I'm going to say, everybody, follow them. I'll be right over here if you need me. Here mm -hmm. I am. <laughs> right. Right. Right over here. That's exactly right. You know, we now have all these relatively young women in politics. They're governors now. I just talked to the new governor of Massachusetts, who's a, a longtime friend of mine. You just want to do whatever you can to not just encourage them personally, but to try to create an environment in which they can flourish, in which they can do their best work. And, you know, you and I have learned some lessons along the way that maybe are useful. But again, we're going to be living our lives. People know where to find us. And we welcome that if they're people we want to be in, you know, conversation with. They are part of our you know, women talking groups, so to speak. The hayloft, yes, as we the say. Hay our own little hayloft. It's the hayloft is a sacred place. <laughs> well, my friend, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you, seeing you virtually. Thank you. Thank you so much for who you are, what you do, and everything that you mean and give to us. It's truly a great honor and delight being with you. Thank you, Madam Secretary. When I watch the Oscars this Sunday, I'll be cheering on the whole team from Women Talking. And if you haven't seen the film yet, I highly recommend you check it out. I'm proud to stand with Frances, Sarah Pauly, Dee Dee Gardner, everyone who is pushing us to support films by people whose voices we haven't heard, who've been kept on the margins for far too long. Before I sign off, I want to let you know we'll be back with a new season of You and Me Both in the fall. But if you can't wait until then, why not check out our archive? There's so many fantastic conversations there, including with the great Glenda Jackson, who Francis was just raving about. 
Glenda still remembers when she was nominated for her first Academy Award for the film Women in Love. When it did happen, I look back on it now and I, it was quite extraordinary because I was a great disappointment to all the kind of journalists because <laughs> I didn't look the way they thought people who were nominated should look. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yes, you know what I mean. <laughs> Go to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to listen. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Rob Russo, with help from Huma Abedin, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Nick Merrill, Laura Olin, Rachel Rosen, Lona Valmoro, and Lily Weber. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and the original music is by Forrest Gray. That's all for now, but as I said, I'll be back in the fall. Until then, you can check out all of our past episodes. And be sure to subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.